just take a minute to say thank you to everybody for the wonderful night that we had last Sunday night. And I uh, really appreciated all the kind words and the generosity and, and so on. I found myself uh, the week before, l- last week, I found myself uh, praying one morning and I was uh, talking to the Lord and I found myself saying to the Lord, you know what, if you would just give me one more lifetime, I think I could do a lot better. Because I've learned some things along the way, right? I was sort of reflecting on the past and uh, 45 years and so on. And, and I thought, wow, you know, if you, if you could go around again, uh, having learned everything that the Lord teaches you the first time around, you probably have a lot more to offer, right? And uh, that's just kind of the way I was feeling. And then so uh, coming into last Sunday night, I appreciated all the uh, affirmation and the, the kind words and, and so on. And uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it on uh, Thanksgiving Eve. But this morning, I wanted to, um, <clears throat> you know, last uh, week, if you were here, you might remember, uh, we looked at three interactions that Moses had with God. And uh, I suggested that they're like mentoring moments for us in our own walk with God, that we could learn a lot from the way Moses interacted with God on these three times. But I never got to the fourth one. And so I thought this morning, it's worthwhile to just pause a moment and to Uh, go back and get to that uh, fourth uh, mentoring moment. Uh, You might remember Moses, you know, this great servant leader, uh, was also a human being. And so um, you might remember from last week that, first of all, we looked at kind of an emotional meltdown that Moses had. Moses sort of got to the end of his rope and uh, got to the point where he said to God, you know, I'd rather die than face the next day that he was facing with all that he had on his plate. And so he kind of had that uh, going on. And then, um, you know, um, he said, uh, second kind of interaction was that he had to make a decision uh, whether he was going to do what was best for God and God's people or best for himself. You might remember that. And he had to make a choice between those two things. And, And then third, you remember, he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And the rock was Christ. It was the source of living water and so on. And and we went into that. So um, this morning, I'd just like to point out um, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, actually, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is um, Moses now with the next generation, the first generation of people who came out of Exodus all die in the wilderness. And the next generation is about to go into the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy is Moses addressing this next generation. Uh, and uh, so it starts out at the beginning with a little review. The first four chapters, actually like three messages in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses gives to the people. But the first couple of chapters, first four chapters are like a review. And so he starts out. And I want to say that in this little short review of four chapters, Moses three times uh, gets very personal. And uh, all three times he gets personal about the same thing. And all three times uh, he, he does something that I think is worth us thinking about as kind of a mentoring moment. So in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and um, in verse uh, 37, he says this. He says, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Now, Moses was devastated. You remember when he uh, struck the rock instead of speaking to it, God said, you're not going into the promised land. I think it was probably number one on his bucket list, Moses. You know, he was dying to go to the promised land, and, and he was devastated when God said, and so he couldn't let it go. He's just like, I can't believe, you know, he's uh, getting up there, he's pretty old, and he's at the end of his life, 
and he's anticipating going into the promised land, and uh, God says, you're not going in. And Moses has a hard time with that. And so uh, here's the first time in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And then, um, uh, again, um, he, he does the same thing in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 23. Um, I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works as mighty as yours? Please, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak about this matter again. Here's Moses pleading with God. God, please, can't I go over and see the promised land? You know, uh, what God is like you and, 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 you know, I've lived my life for you and so on. And uh, then you go over to chapter 4 and uh, chapter 4 and verse 20. Uh, the, again, this is part of a review, right? So the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. God calls it the iron furnace, out of Egypt. Remember, they were slaves to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. And furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over to the Jordan, over the Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of the good land. And so on. Um, Moses, poor Moses. Don't you feel for him? But listen, all three times as Moses reflects on this, he blames somebody, he blames the people. On your account, it's your fault that I did this. All three times, Moses, it's like he cannot face the biggest failure of his life, right? And he's trying to blame it on somebody else. He just can't bring himself. I think the shame that he felt over what he did and how he blew it just would not enable him. He just, he couldn't, just be honest and uh, talk about this. Uh, you can tell that this is just a huge disappointment at the end of his life. But it's not true, Moses. The truth is, uh, if you go back to the original account in Numbers uh, chapter 20 and verse 12, uh, the truth is, here's, here's what happened. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses, this is on you. You did this. Stop blaming everybody else. You know, one of the hints that we've got stuff going on inside that we've never faced. I, every once in a while, somebody will say, you know, I've never told anybody this before. And uh, I learned from higher ground. You know, you're only as sick as your secrets, right? That's what I've learned from higher ground. You're only as sick as your secrets. And so here's Moses, and he's got this thing inside that he, he, he really messed up. And it's almost like he can't face it. And I think the mentoring moment comes because we have to understand that all we have at the end of the day is the forgiving grace of God. And Moses, you know, uh, uh, just couldn't, like, get to that point where he could say, you know, I'm totally dependent on the forgiveness of God for what I did. And uh, he just felt, you know, uh, guilty for it. Now, of course, he's on the other side of Christ's coming and so forth. 
But he just couldn't admit his big failure, and he tried to uh, shift the blame off of himself and onto the people. Now, Moses, you know, he's like the best servant leader that you could think of. And he struggled to keep God's word at the end of his life. So we shouldn't think that that's a piece of cake. We shouldn't think that as we go on and we can, as we get older and so forth, that we're not going to come across, you know, challenges from God's word that are going to challenge us and tempt us in ways that uh, we might be tempted to fail as well. And when that happens, we need to be able to admit our failure. Moses just couldn't uh, admit it. And so I think this becomes kind of a mentoring moment. Um, The truth is, at the end of the day, all we really have is the forgiving grace of God. If you confess your sins, he will forgive you and his blood will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, right? 1 John 1, 9. And so we need to understand that even at the end of the day, no matter how long we've lived, how great a servant leader we've been, um, the truth of the matter is we're totally dependent on the grace of God and what God has uh, accomplished for us. Okay, I just had, I feel better now that we got that fourth uh, mentoring moment in. So let's pick up in numbers where we left off. Uh, The people are about to move into the land of Canaan. The land is being fought over. Uh, Even today, the the land of Israel is still being fought over, right? And so um, the land is, uh, God had promised them the land, but they're going to have to fight if they're going to take it. And so just because the land is promised by God doesn't mean that they're not going to have to fight to possess it. And I want to suggest to you that there is a side to living uh, with God that uh, is opposed by the world. And so that part of the Christian life is a fight. And it's a side that we don't like to talk about, we don't like to think about, and we like to excuse ourselves from. We used to sing a song, Onward Christian Soldiers, you know, because we we have a job to do in the world, and we're here to bring the kingdom of God, to bear upon the kingdom of this world. And and, uh, part of it is like being a soldier. And uh, there's a fight that has to be had, and there's an enemy, there's a There's the small g God of this world. Paul calls it 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, Satan is the small g God. And he's opposed to God. And therefore, he's opposed to God's people. And therefore, there's an edge to our Christianity. There's always a fight going on. There's always a challenge to our faith, right? Uh, There's always uh, an uncomfortableness about being in the world. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. You know, and uh, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue and, and so forth. And so I think it's important for us to kind of have this sense uh, in which we understand uh, that there's an element of fighting uh, that needs to be a part. And when we are called to fight, I believe it's always on two fronts. It's both spiritual and physical. Um, it's both internal and external. Uh, it's inside of us and it's outside of us. Uh, If you've ever prayed this prayer and meant it, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then you're in the middle of this battle. You're in the middle of bringing the kingdom of God to bear upon the kingdom of this world. And we're engaged in a fight. And the victory is promised, but the fight is real. And uh, if the journey uh, of the Israelites is to be a picture of our Christianity which Paul says it is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, then I think we would be wise to prepare for the fight and not think that we're just going to coast into heaven, into the promised land. 
about that there will be uh, skirmishes, if you will, along the way. And that's why Paul says, you know, put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 so that you can stand, so that you won't collapse and cave and, and so on. And so most of the Exodus generation has died out in the wilderness. And uh, Moses is leading the next generation to the promised land. And they begin to encounter opposition. And uh, they're on what's called the King's Highway. And uh, they've come to uh, up against the Amorite people in Numbers uh, chapter 21. So let's uh, pick up there. Numbers chapter 21, verse uh, 21. Uh, Israel sent uh, messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, and said, uh, let me pass through your land. Uh, we will not turn aside into the fields or the vineyards. Uh, we won't drink your water from the well. Uh, we'll just go by on the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon uh, would not allow Israel to pass through his territory, and he gathered all his people together, and he went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz, and fought against Israel. So here we go. Uh, the opposition comes. And uh, long story short, the Israelites kill and drive out the Amorites. And uh, they end up camped out just east of the Jordan River opposite Jericho. Jericho was, uh, you know, the walled city. Everybody knows about Jericho. It was sort of the gatekeeping city to uh, get into the promised land from the south. And uh, right across the Jordan River is where the people camped. Uh, Numbers 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel set out, and they camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And so uh, there they were camped out, and they're in the land of the Moabites. If you're not familiar with this, you know, usually in the back of your Bible, you can find a map that shows you kind of where it is. If you don't have one of those in your Bible, this map up here shows you, you know, the uh, Red Sea at the top had two uh, forks that went like this, and the people went across and they're in the Sinai in between, and you can kind of trace it around. And at the very bottom, uh, at the top of that map is the Dead Sea. And uh, you can kind of see the area that we're talking about. There was a group of people uh, by the name of the Moabites, and uh, along with the Midianites who uh, lived in that area. And um, they, when they heard about Israel's, uh, you know, I'm just skipping over a lot of things here, but if you read the whole peace, you'd see that Israel starts taking these cities and towns, and they start moving in, they start settling in, and uh, finally when they come up against the Moabites, the Moabites are scared spitless of the Israelites. There's about a million and a half, most people estimate, uh, Israelites at this time, and they're moving up like a caravan, right? And they're on their way uh, into Moab, and uh, the king there is like uh, really scared. And so, really interesting story, the king of Moab is a guy by the name of Balak, and uh, he sends for a guy by the name of Balaam, B-A-L-A-A-M, Balaam. And uh, this guy Balaam, you know, is one of the oddest guys you'll meet in the entire Old Testament. Um, this is the guy uh, who uh, fancies himself as a prophet, and he hires himself out to various people to put curses and blessings on other people. And so uh, the king of Moab goes and hires this guy, to come and put a curse on the Israelites uh, to try and defend himself lest the Israelites overrun the Moabites uh, like they are doing everybody else. So we pick it up in Numbers chapter 22 and uh, verse 2, uh, Balak, uh, the, son, the king, the son of Zippor, uh, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Uh, Moab was overcome with fear 
of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde is now going to lick up all that's around us like an ox licks up grass in the field. And so Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, uh, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people and so on and so forth. And um, here's what he says, verse 6, come now and curse this people for me. Since they are too many for me, perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know uh, that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. And so Balaam has a reputation. He's got some kind of supernatural power. He's got some kind of uh, clout uh, in the spiritual world. And he's got a reputation that whom he blesses, uh, those people are blessed, and whom he curses, those people are cursed. And so uh, the king knows this about Balaam, his supernatural powers. Now, um, it's interesting because uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, a little bit later on, as Moses, again, is addressing the people before they go into the land of Canaan, it's very obvious that the occult and, uh, is very active in the land of Canaan. And so one of the things that Moses does repeatedly, actually, is to warn the people uh, not to get involved with uh, the demonic powers that are so prevalent in the land of Canaan. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 18, let me just read a couple of verses for you. In verse 9, Moses is telling these people, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anybody who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, Anybody who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a wizard or a necromer, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners, diviners, Uh, But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now, all through the Bible, you know, God forbids people to seek um, the satanic, demonic world for guidance uh, and advice and power and and all of those kinds of things. And so this was very ripe. In fact, one of the reasons for the judgment that was coming upon Canaan was their uh, uh, saturation uh, in the occult. And, of course, this is, uh, these practices that are talked about here uh, are forbidden. And today, you know, palm readers and horoscopes and, and uh, Ouija boards and spiritists and false prophets and so forth all fit into this category of uh, seeking guidance from the demonic world and are all forbidden all the time uh, to God's people. It's very real. Uh, people get caught up in this and... Uh, you know, um, it's, it's very sad when this happens, but it's always forbidden um, by God. And so, again, back in Numbers, if we pick up the story in uh, Numbers chapter 22 and uh, verse 7, uh, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their hand. And they came to this guy, Balaam, and gave him Balak's message, the king's message. And he said to them, lodge here tonight, and I'll bring back to you uh, word tomorrow Uh, as the Lord speaks to me. And so the princes of Moab stayed with uh, Balaam. So God comes and speaks to Balaam, okay? Uh, Verse 9. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, 
uh, has sent to me saying, behold, the people has come up out of Egypt and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go. Boom, black and white. You shall not go, okay? You shall not curse those people. They're blessed. They're blessed, okay? And so Balaam um, has a problem. Uh, Balaam, I think, first of all, does not understand that the God of the Israelites is the God. And Balaam thinks this is just one of the gods that he can manipulate, just another voice coming to him. Uh, and he can't uh, discern that this is really the one true God, uh, just one of the other gods. And he's wrong. And so uh, God says, don't go. And so uh, in verse 15, um, well, first of all, he doesn't go. So he doesn't go. And, uh, and he sends all the people back, and they go back to Balak. Verse 15 says, uh, once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than the first group. And they came to Balaam a second time, and they said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. Blank check. There's the king saying, this is a blank check. You can come. I'll do anything you want. Please come and, um, you know, curse these people for me. Now, it's interesting, uh, verse 18 and 19, um, Balaam answers, and he says to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God and do uh, less or more. And so you two, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord may say to me. The Lord already said, don't go. But you know what? Balaam really wants to go. <laughs> Balaam's got ideas of the king's house full of silver and gold. He really, you ever, this ever happened to you? You ever want to know so bad, you know, you want something so bad, and you go to God and you pray about it, and you don't like what God, God says no, and you don't like it. So you go back. You beg, right? You, you do this again. You're like, God, are you really sure? Now, I really want to marry this guy. Please, let me marry this guy. God, I really want to be the recipient of that inheritance so I can have that money. Please, God, please. You know, and you go back. And I think this is what's going on here. Balaam goes back and he says to the people, well, just stay here tonight and I'll go back, talk to God again, see what happens. You know, maybe I can convince him to uh, let me go. Maybe I convince him to change his mind and so forth. And so he tries. And so God comes to Balaam again in uh, chapter 22 and verse 20. And um, God comes to Balaam at night and says to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Interesting. God's saying, all right, go ahead. You go. Okay. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took off with the princes of Moab. Now, verse 22, 23. But God's anger was kindled because he went. God gave him permission, but then God came against him. And I think we're right back to where Moses was when Moses had to make a decision. Am I going to do what's best for God and God's people, or am I going to do what's best for me? And Moses said, I'm going to do what's best for God and God's people. And Balaam says, I'm going to do what I think 
is best for me. And, and God said, I'm going to give you permission. Go ahead. You want to screw up your life? Have at it. But I'm going to be against you. And uh, it's interesting to me that, that you, we can do this, right? Here's that verse 23. God's anger was kindled because he went. Right? Now, if you're on Balaam's side, you're like, well, God, you gave him permission to go. But you don't understand what's going on, you know, below the surface and so forth. And so, um, and then, look at, so God sends an angel, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as Balaam's adversary. I'm going to come against you. God's going to come against you. You can do it. But you know better. I already told you what my will was. You can do it. And so uh, if you're familiar with the story, you know, the uh, angel comes and the, the, the donkey sees the angel, but Balaam doesn't see the angel. And so the donkey gives uh, Balaam a hard time and, and Balaam's beating on the donkey, you know. And um, I think this uh, goes on like three times. You know, and I, I was thinking about this, uh, to be honest with you, last Sunday night when you were heaping all these accolades on me. And uh, I was saying, you know, it's really, it's really not a big deal. God can speak through a donkey. People are like, oh, Pastor Dave, you know, like God spoke to me through you today, you know, and I'm like, well, I'm really happy for that, but you know, God can speak through a donkey, so give the accolades to God, not to the donkey, you know, kind of thing. And um, so that's what happens here. God speaks through the donkey. Um, you know the story, right? I don't have time to read it. Verse 32, the angel of the Lord uh, said uh, to Balaam, you know, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Uh, behold, I've, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse. You're not thinking right. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You're not, you're perverse. You're, you, you know what you want. You're after what you want. It's all about you and it's not about God. And, 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 and so the angel of the Lord is against it and so forth. And, and uh, he said, you know, the donkey saw me and turned aside uh, these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. <laughs> so this Balaam, he's an interesting guy, right? And um, anyway, um, verse 35, uh, the donkey, you know, uh, speaks, and uh, the angel of the Lord says to Balaam, uh, now go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam goes with the princes of Balak. So this guy Balaam, the prophet, goes off. They're on their way to the king. And um, uh, verse 38, Balaam says to Balak, uh, as soon as he gets there and meets the king, first thing he says, kind of covers his tail. He says, look, uh, I I've come to you. You wanted me to come to you. You've sent me a blank check. Uh, have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So Balaam is like, you know what? Uh, I don't know what you're expecting, you know, but I got this thing going on in my own life, and I'm not so sure this is going to be successful. And uh, um, I don't know what's going to happen here. And so if you know the story, uh, chapter 23, uh, three times they try to curse the people of Israel, the king and Balaam together, and uh, it doesn't work. And uh, in verse 11 of chapter 23, Balak, the king, says to Balaam, what have you done to me? <laughs> what have you done to me, man? Uh, I, I took you on, you know, to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. 
He couldn't help it. Like God wouldn't let him curse them. So he blessed the Israelites and he answered and he said, uh, must I not take care to speak what the Lord just put in my mouth? And so on. And so uh, Balaam can't do it, you know. And um, so what happens is that, you know, they try this several times. And then finally, um, the fourth time is like a prophecy. And we don't have time to get into it. But in uh, chapter 24 and verse 14, and now behold, I'm going to go to my people Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. So Balaam now is uh, enabled to speak, and, and he gives a prophecy about the future. And, uh, I, you know, we don't have time, but verse 17 is just such a neat thing. Uh, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. And uh, so if we trace that out all the way uh, through Daniel and, and into Revelation and so forth, we'd see he's talking about Jesus. And uh, this Balaam is, uh, you know, prophesying something that's going to happen in the future and, and, and so on. However, what's going on while all this is going on is uh, really terrible. Um, in Numbers chapter 31, um, there's, again, a war that breaks out. And um, in Numbers chapter 31... Uh, uh, war with the Midianites happens, and guess who dies? Verse 8. Uh, during this war, they killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. So Balaam dies, okay? And uh, the Israelite army that's fighting the Midianites uh, wins the war, comes back, and look what's with them. Verse 16. Behold, these... Um, well... Let me, let me just back up a second. Uh, verse 9. The people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder their cattle, flocks, and all their goods, and so forth. And, uh, you know, I messed up. I'm trying to rush because I know I'm out of time here. But uh, in uh, Numbers 25, uh, I believe it is, in Numbers 25, here's what's going on. And then I'll get to 31. That's what I meant to do. While Israel was uh, camped uh, around Moab, okay? While Israel was camped around uh, Moab, a place called Shittim, uh, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, okay? What happened is that uh, the Israelite was set up, their camp was just on the other side of the Jordan in the land of Moab. And right next to the land of Moab, the Midianites set up a pagan worship center. And they bring a lot of beautiful women to be a part of the pagan worship center right next to Israel's camp. And so while Israel lived there, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And uh, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So now we get to 31 and uh, we say, you know, where on earth did those people ever get an idea like that? And so you go to chapter 31 and the, they come back, uh, they go and fight these Midianites, they come back, they got all these women with them. And um, 
In verse 16, Moses says to them, Have you let all of these women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came to the congregation of the Lord. Now here's the deal. Three times Balaam and Balak together tried to curse Israel, couldn't do it, and so forth. So finally, Balaam, apparently... You know, comes up with some advice about how to get God to destroy the Israelites or how to get the Israelites to destroy themselves. And he plants this seed thought of creating this pagan worship center right next to the Israelite camp. And the Israelites fall for it. And God is really ticked. And uh, judgment falls upon. Now, this is the second generation, right? Uh, the other uh, group all died in the wilderness and so on. And, and, uh, you know, it was Balaam's advice. He couldn't curse Israel directly, but so he comes up with a scheme uh, whereby the people destroy themselves because he knows that God will always judge sin, right? And there will always be a consequence for sin. And so I'm thinking Balaam probably got his money, uh, but he didn't live long enough to spend it, right? Uh, now, uh, there are three places in the New Testament that talk about Balaam. There's three places in the New Testament, and uh, maybe we don't have time to go there, but the first place is in 2 Peter. I just want to tell you about it. In 2 Peter, uh, Peter's talking about false teachers, and he's talking about uh, uh, Balaam, and he's saying, don't fall for uh, being a false teacher, what Balaam did, who um, you know, compromised his theology, if you will, uh, for the sake of money. And then uh, the second one is in Jude, uh, and again, talking about false teachers. And the third one is in the book of Revelation, the teaching of Balaam, uh, which suggests sanctioning immorality, sanctioning immorality uh, 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 among God's people. And I just think of all the uh, scandals that are going on in the various churches uh, in our day. And they call it the sin of Balaam, you know, who, uh, you know, uh, would, the contemporary examples of this spiritual battle that goes on uh, both on the inside and the outside of our lives. And so uh, I'm going to uh, kind of stop here. Uh, the second part of this message was really uh, about God telling the people to go to war against the people in Canaan and totally destroy them, men, women, children, uh, all their religious paraphernalia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Uh, a lot of people have a hard time with God, you know, uh, sanctioning war and especially a devastating uh, total war like that. And uh, why? Well, two reasons. Number one was the judgment on the Canaanites for uh, the, the, their evil had reached its peak. It's interesting. In Abraham's day, 400 years before Moses, God said to Abraham when he made his deal with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, God said the uh, iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet full. 400 years later, the iniquity of the Canaanites was so full that God said, Utterly destroy them. Utterly go in there and wipe them out. And uh, take, you know, get rid of everything. And so judgment was part of the reason. And, you know, if we follow that to Revelation chapter 8 and the trumpet judgments of God that are going to come on the second coming of Christ, on all the evil that's in our world and so forth, you read about it, you say, how could God sanction such destruction? Well, because it's, it's the evil that all of that uh, has embraced. And, uh, and then the final uh, section really was the reason for God calling for that holy war, if you will, is so that none of that would be a temptation to the people of God. 
because they just keep failing. And so if you go to the next generation, like to Judges, uh, chapter 1 and 2, uh, you'll read that the people didn't pay any attention to God. You know what? It says they did not remember what God had done. And I find, you know, today in uh, contemporary music, some of the uh, Christian music is, you know, we want God to do more for us so that we can know his power and we can prove his existence and all this. Meanwhile, I think the scriptures are screaming at us for us to remember what God has already done. Remember the cross, right? Remember. Stop demanding more from God and remember the great acts that God has already done and our faith will grow. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, you are an awesome God, and I thank you for the story of the Israelites. I thank you for having Moses write it all down. I thank you for the instruction that comes into our life. I thank you, Father, to uh, be able to so clearly see the parallels between the people's struggles and temptations and uh, bad choices and our own everyday living in a relationship with you. And I pray, Father, that we would take these mentoring moments, that we would learn from them, and uh, that we would apply them in such a way that we would remember, Father, all that you've done, and that we would be encouraged and lifted up and strengthened in our faith because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.